Be seated. Have you met someone who always seems to know what to do? Uh, I, I'm not talking about know-it-all. You know, one of those people that, that thinks they know what to do in every situation. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about someone who, who really does seem to know what to do. If you encounter someone like that, you'll find that you're drawn naturally to that person. They're, that quiet confidence that, that exudes from them because they just know what to do, that, that creates a sense of security that, that is attractive. Well, this morning we're going to see that each one of us is called to be that kind of a person. We should know what to do in every situation. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we'll have the skills to address every challenge that arises. We're not going to somehow magically have the set of skills that will give us what we need for every task. But God does call us to know what to do in every situation. We're, we're going to look at our second text in Paul's letter to the, the Colossians this morning. We began this series a couple of weeks ago, and you might recall that, that Paul wrote this letter to this church in the city of Colossae while he was imprisoned in Rome. This letter is a little unique in that it appears as if Paul has never actually been to this church personally. This church was probably started by one of Paul's friends, likely even a disciple, a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras has visited Paul now in Rome while he's there in prison and shared with Paul that there are some issues in the church. And in response to those issues, an opportunity arose for Paul to write this letter and to send it back so he could address these issues in the church. The first thing that we encountered when we looked at the letter was Paul started out describing how thankful he was for these people. He was thankful that these believers are there. He assured them that he regularly praises God for them. He praises God that, that the gospel was not only accepted by them, but the gospel is transforming them. It's transforming their lives because of the faith that they have in Christ. Because that is what the gospel does. The gospel transforms people. This morning, as we look at the next paragraph, or at least most of the next paragraph, you may realize Paul is famous for these long, run-on sentences. Well, the next paragraph is one of those long, run-on sentences. From the, the, A single sentence begins in verse 9, and it runs all the way through verse 14. That makes up really the next paragraph, and we're not looking at all of that today. Uh, there's just too much packed into it. So we're going to save the final part for next week, but we're going to look at most of the sentence this week, most of the, the paragraph. There, there's plenty here to encourage, encourage us and to focus us. So we're going to look at just verses 9 through 12 today. As we do, though, we should have ringing in our ears the, the words that Paul gave from the beginning that reminds us that the gospel transforms. Let's begin, actually, at the start of the letter so those words are ringing in our ears this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our faithful our beloved fellow bond servant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Paul's thanking God for them because the gospel is transforming them. Now he goes on, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, period, but not really. Our translators had that period there, but Paul keeps going. We're going to end there today, though. We'll, we'll follow the English adjustment to help us put some context here to, to be able to wrap it in and to, to work our way through just that piece this morning. Since this is part of a single sentence this morning, we can anticipate that, that the idea that Paul is expressing is one that will kind of develop as, as it goes. He'll grow his idea. And I want to emulate that structure by, by building our main idea today as we work our way through our verses. Now, we'll begin with a foundation, a, a nu nucleus to our main idea this morning, and I'm going to express that as we are to magnify Christ. That's the, the core element of our idea. We are to magnify Christ. That, that foundational portion it really comes in these verses from the words, for this reason. This reason. That, that takes us back to the previous paragraph, the, the whole idea of what Paul has been saying about Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ transforms people, is transforming the Colossians, and that transformation shows evidence of itself, and that results in Paul's praise. Well, the same thing is true for us. We receive the gospel. The gospel transforms us, and as it does, it displays itself to others, and as it displays itself, Christ is magnified. That is our purpose. We are to magnify Christ. That's why we're here. Our purpose boils down to this idea, showing evidence of the gospel's transforming work to others, magnifying our Savior. We're not here to find personal enjoyment or fulfillment. We're not here to become rich and famous. We're not here to provide for the ease or, or the exciting experiences of our children and grandchildren. Now, any of these things could happen, although rich and famous maybe is a little further out there for most of us, but, but they could happen. But even if they do, we're to recognize this is not why we're here. This is not the core reason of our existence. We are here to magnify Christ. That is why we are here. Why do we spend endless hours doing these other things when we're here to magnify Christ? We're to magnify the one who died for us. That is our reason of existence. Allowing anything to 
replace that as the aim of our lives means that we are falling short of the purpose that God has given us for existence. Allowing anything to replace magnifying Christ as the aim of our lives means that our lives will not provide the satisfaction and joy that they could. Because we're chasing something else instead of what God designed us for. Allowing anything to replace magnifying Christ as the aim of our lives means that we will not leave the eternal impact that we should. We are to magnify Christ. That's the nub of our idea. That's the core. That's the foundation. That's the center of what Paul is talking about here. We are to magnify Christ. That is our ultimate purpose in life. But how? How do we do that? The the how is what Paul is dealing with in the text that we're looking at this morning. He's already said we're to magnify Christ. That's the, the first thing he's expressing there. He's thanking God that the Colossians are doing that. Now, building on the foundation of magnifying Christ, we can expand our main idea from what Paul says by by adding, we are to magnify Christ with right thinking. With right thinking. Verse 9 gives the first of two things that, that Paul says he's praying for on behalf of the believers. Remember, these are people he's never met, but he's praying for these two things. Two things that allow them to accomplish their core purpose of being transformed by the gospel so that they display it to others. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask, number one, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the first thing he's praying for. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Let's pick this apart a little bit. That's a a mouthful. Even when I tried to say it, it, it's a mouthful. Let's pick it apart. What does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of his will? People have gone in all kinds of strange directions trying to discover the will of God. They they act as if the will of God is some obscure, hidden thing that that, that needs to be sought, like it's some mystery that that must be discovered, some secret knowledge that, that has to be gained. If you think it's any of those things, go to Tim Phoebe's class next time he teaches on the will of God. It's not obscure. It's not something that has to be sought out and and discovered as a mystery. All that Paul means when he says the knowledge of God's will here is they want the Colossians to understand Christ. It's that simple. Understand Christ. Christ has revealed God fully. God has ensured that the knowledge of Christ is preserved in the New Testament. That's how we discover Christ. We learn the New Testament. What is needed is an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done and what all that means for our lives as believers. That is the knowledge of the will of God. In other words, understanding the will of God requires understanding biblical doctrines. Biblical doctrine, especially as as doctrine applies to Christ. Now, I'm intentionally, you may have not picked it up, but I'm intentionally using the word understanding rather than knowing. We are not simply know details about Christ. Our goal is not know information 
about Christ. Rather, the information about Christ is to impact our lives. It's to impact who we are. The word that Paul uses, that we have translated here, knowledge in the New American Standard, is a word that has a slightly stronger force than the normal word that we find in the New Testament for knowledge. It means full knowledge or thorough knowledge. If we want to understand the will of God fully, we need to know how the Word of God impacts our lives. We have to comprehend the details, the information, but, but that information has to impact our lives. We need to comprehend how the Word of God points to Christ and how Christ transforms us. This is where we get to the right thinking part. We cannot think rightly if we do not have right knowledge. But the knowledge has to impact how we think. Not just, get, not just get tucked away in our mental data stores so that, that when we're asked a question, we can answer it. So, teens, I want you to listen up because I know teens love to do this. When they're asked a question and they don't know what the answer is in, in Bible class, they, they go, Jesus. It's not just knowing information. It's being impacted by the information. Jesus is the answer, but only as he impacts our life. Look at the rest of the verse. Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That last part of the verse is telling us their knowledge of God's will is to operate within this spiritual realm of wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. In other words, we, we do not only know truths about God, we not only know things defined as they're defined by God, we're to make our decisions based on that knowledge. We're to decide what is right and wrong based on the truth of God's word. Knowing Christ transforms us. Our thinking has to be impacted by, by his revealed will, his his revelation that the, the information that we have in Scripture that points to Christ calls us to be Christ-like. God must become the defining influence in determining right thinking in our lives. I cannot emphasize enough how countercultural this idea is. Nor can I emphasize enough how important it is for us to get this point that, that the knowledge of God has to transform our thinking. For over a generation now, we've lived in what is called a postmodern world. That, that means that, that truth is relative. There, there's no such thing as truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, it's relative. For over a generation, that's been the drumbeat of our culture. And that... The impact of that drumbeat of a postmodernism that has influenced us to the point where most of us can hold conflicting ideas in our minds at the same time and not have a problem with that. We we can allow different ideas to govern different portions of our lives and, and not even care that there's inherent conflict in that, in those ideas. We we've become inconsistent creatures. And we're okay with that. Now, now that might be too philosophical for, for some of you to, to keep up with and to know what, what's he talking about when he says inconsistent creatures. Well, let me boil it down with some examples. 
We've come to the point where we know the Bible says certain things are wrong. And we'll readily admit that's what the Bible says. But, but we don't feel at all bad when we do those things. The Bible would call it hardened to sin, but we're, have, we're hardened in a particular way in that we live our lives different. And as long as we live our life in church one way, we don't really care if another part of our life conflicts with that. For example, the Bible doesn't allow for divorce. I know the Bible doesn't allow for divorce in my marriage just because I'm unhappy. You know, there are cases where the Bible allows for divorce, and we can discuss the nuances of that, but just say, I'm unhappy, and I know the Bible doesn't allow for divorce there, but I think I should be happy all the time. So I'm going to get a divorce. The Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. I know that. But it's not really that big of a deal if a member of my family chooses to engage in open lifestyle. I shouldn't really make a big deal out over that. I know the Bible clearly states the person is either male or female, but, but I'm going to accept my grandchild if they decide that they're misgendered. If she comes to me and says, I think I really should be a boy, well, I need to love my grandchild. What I'm saying is we know we need to hold on to the, the truth claims of the Bible, but at the same time we show willingness to, to flex in other areas of life because somehow we think this is okay. That, that we can show love somehow by being inconsistent. That it's important to get along with everybody all the time. That's what postmodernism has done to us, even in the church. And Paul is saying, no. No. What Paul is telling us is be filled with the knowledge of the will of God and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That rips apart all kinds of fuzzy thinking that says I can be inconsistent. God has spoken. Our thinking must align with what God's revealed will says, period. There's only one option to magnify Christ. And that is with right thinking. So that's what we have to do. End of story. We are to magnify Christ with right thinking. And right thinking aligns with God's revealed word. Always. Yet right thinking alone is not enough. We need complete the, the full thought that, that Paul develops in our verses. We do need right thinking. We are to magnify Christ with right thinking. That leads to right actions. We cannot stop with right thinking. We must act on right thinking with right actions. Of course, it's impossible to have right actions without right thinking. We won't do the right things if we're not thinking rightly, except maybe by accident, because we didn't do what we intended to do. So we, we can't do right actions without right thinkings, but we can have right thinking and still fail to do right actions. We need to have both to magnify Christ. Right thinking and right actions. Look at what Paul says in verse 10. The second thing he's praying for, he's praying, number one, that they have right thinking, but number two, he's praying on behalf of the Christians, not only that they'll be filled with the knowledge of his will, now he says that, number two, 
they may walk in manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in manner worthy of the Lord. That is a big ask. A big ask for the, the, the Colossians and a big ask for us as well. Most of us recognize that we would respond to gracious actions. You know, if someone does something gracious for us, or if they give us a gift or they do something kind, we would respond to those in a manner worthy of the action or the gift. Someone holds a door open for us. It's proper to say thank you. Someone gives us a birthday present. It's proper to write a thank you card. Those are, are, are actions that are consistent with the manner worthy of the gift or the act. If someone doesn't per, perform these kinds of actions or, or gratitudes, it reflects poorly. It's, it's conduct that's unbecoming. Well, what is a manner worthy of the Lord? What kind of conduct is required to be walking? Walk just means our conduct. What kind of conduct is worthy of our Lord? After all, Christ died for us. What can we do that shows gratitude worthy of that sacrifice? If we're going to magnify our Savior, our conduct must be worthy. What are the right actions that, that would represent conduct worthy of our Lord? Actions that, that are pleasing to Him in all things. What do we need to do so that we meet that standard? There are a lot of things that we could put under the category of right actions. As we go through Scripture, we know God gives us lots of things that we ought to do. We could put any of those under the categories of God's standards because, or, or of right actions because we know God says you ought to do these things. That means that doing them pleases Him, right? So those are things that are worthy. But Paul specifically calls out four. Four specifics. Four specifics, I'll call them right actions this, this morning. He calls out for us. One, he says, the first right action is bearing spiritual fruit. Conduct becoming is bearing spiritual fruit. Bearing fruit in every good work. He uses this image of a fruit tree that, that produces fruits. Christians are to bear fruit. Of course, Paul's using that metaphorically. We're not to become apple and pear orchard growers. That, that's not what he's saying we have to do as Christians. He's saying metaphorically we are to produce fruit that, that's consistent with our character, just like a pear tree produces pears. We are Christians. We are to produce Christian things out of our lives. That's why I'm calling it spiritual fruit. Look carefully at the wording that Paul gives. We are to produce spiritual fruit in every good work. The good work is not the fruit. Good works are not the fruits produced. The good works are the realm within which the fruit is produced. The fruit is something different than the good works. Now, I could park on this phrase and make a sermon just out of this phrase. But, but rather than do that this morning, let me boil it down for us. The, the point that Paul's making here is there are all sorts of, of good works available to a Christian. Things that we should do. In Ephesians 4.10, he says, we'll walk through life, we'll look back through our life, and we'll see that God produced good works out of us. There's all kinds of good things. We might think of them as legitimate endeavors that, that we can expend our life energy upon. For example, we spend a, a good portion of our lives caring for our families. That is a good work. 
We, we spend another portion of our lives earning a living. That also should be a good work. I say it should be because we, we might engage in a livelihood that is not legitimate for a Christian. For example, if, say, you, you ran a gambling establishment, um, that's not a legitimate work for a Christian because the profits depend upon people yielding to vice of gambling. A Christian can't make his living that way. Running a nursing home, for example, that's, that's a legitimate thing a Christian can do. Is it shows love, assuming you're not overcharging your patients, of course, or gouging the insurance or something that way. Uh, my point is there's legitimate things we can do to earn our living, lots of them. There are many good works that a believer can engage in. Paul assumes that believers will all be engaged in, in all sorts of good things, good works. The right action that he's calling us to rises beyond simply engaging in these things that are legitimate. What Paul is calling us to do is use these legitimate engagements as opportunities to impact others for Christ. Others need to see the gospel transformation in our lives as we go about our lives engaging in good works, doing these legitimate things. We need to be displaying Christ to others, drawing people to Christ so that Fruit is being produced, spiritual fruit. We need to share Christ so that they can experience gospel transformation. We need to find opportunities for that transformation to shine out of our lives as, as we engage in all kinds of activities. There are good works. I, I fear sometimes, friends, that, that we're simply content with engaging in good works. We, we pat on ourselves saying, I'm avoiding these illegitimate things, doing these legitimate things as a believer. And we're content. We do things that are respectable for Christians to do, and we're content. We don't actually bear spiritual fruit while we do them. We go to work day after day, week after week, month after month, doing a job that allows us to provide for our family. That is a good thing. It's a job that we have that any Christian could hold his or her head up high because it's legitimate for a Christian to do this. Yet no one at our workplace knows that we're a Christian. We've never told them. Or if they do know a Christian, it's only because they've heard that we attend a Baptist church. Not quite sure what that means. It seems a little weird, but that's, they know that much about us. We've never told anyone at the workplace what a difference Christ has made in our lives. And furthermore, we've certainly never urged anyone in the workplace to know Christ themselves. We're not bearing spiritual fruit. The first right action is bearing spiritual fruit. Bearing spiritual fruit in the good works we're doing. The second is closely connected to the first. In, in that second, we're to in, be increasing in biblical knowledge. Increasing in biblical knowledge. Paul continues this fruit tree metaphor kind of as he uses this second term, increasing. The, he relates back to verse 6 where he used both of them there too. Bear fruit and increase in it. Well, we're to increase and the way it increases through the knowledge of God. The image he creates is that this tree, in order to keep bearing fruit, has to keep growing. And the way we grow our spiritual trees is by increasing in biblical knowledge. Are you increasing in your biblical knowledge? It's that simple. Are you increasing? 
I know many of you are. I watch. You look for opportunities. And when those opportunities to increase in knowledge come along, you quickly grasp opportunities to learn more about God. But I've also been here a long time. When I look back now, I've been in this church a long time. And I know that there are some of you that have lulled yourself into a false sense of contentment. Thinking that you're okay with what you currently know. In the past decade, you've participated in opportunities to increase your biblical knowledge somewhere in the range of rarely to never. You're not doing what God says you need to do. A failure to increase in biblical knowledge is a failure to walk in a manner worthy of your Lord. Let me say that again. A failure to increase in your knowledge is a failure to walk in a manner worthy of God, or of your Lord, of your Savior. That failure concerns me. And I hope it concerns you as well. Increasing in biblical knowledge. That's the second action listed. Right action number three. Being strengthened for trials. Being strengthened for trials. That's my attempt to, to summarize all of verse 11. What I fear that I may lose in this summary is the connection to the, the, that the third action has to the first two. There is a connection in Paul's thoughts. As we go through trials and hardships, we, we know those will come in our lives. We've been talking about that a lot in my Sunday school class on lament. As we know trials and hardships, they, they'll come and, and we certainly need to accept these circumstances, as Paul says there, with steadfastness and patience. That's the words that show up at the end of verse 11. We, we need to accept trials with steadfast and patience. We need to endure these hard times. Yet, yet if we disconnect this third idea from the first two, we may miss the full idea. You, you see, our trials are only something for us to endure if they become opportunities that God brings, if we see them as opportunities that God brings to bear spiritual fruit. It's not simply enduring that that is what Paul is calling us to as right actions. Yes, we are to endure. We are to be steadfast. We're, we're not to be moved by our trials. But we're not doing the right action that goes along with right thinking if all we're doing is enduring. Rather, we're to see all of these as circumstances that we can use to bear more fruit. As we actively display the, the transforming work of the gospel in our lives during trials, that's when we find that God will use our lives to impact others. Now, I readily admit responding to hardships with steadfastness and patience is not an easy task. It's not an easy thing to do, especially when Paul goes and he throws in that little word, all. All steadfastness and patience. That little word means, as one commentator expressed it, that we are to endure with the very greatest possible endurance and patience. Wow, that's a challenge, isn't it? The greatest possible endurance and patience. One might even call that an impossible challenge when you see that little word all. All steadfastness and patience. It would be an impossible challenge if it were not for the fact that that's the second time in the verse we have that little word. 
That little word all shows up earlier. Do you see the first all at, towards the beginning of the verse? The right action that they were actually called to do is, is found in the first part of the verse. The action that we're to display is the action of being strengthened with all power. Now, I add the word being to our translation to clarify the idea that is clear in the original language. We're to receive strength. We're not to show strength. We're to be strengthened. We could translate it as being strengthened with all strength, or, or we could say being empowered with all power. That's what Paul tells us to do. We're to be empowered with all power that's available through the Holy Spirit's work. Yes, it takes a lot of strength to endure any trial that comes with steadfastness and patience, especially when we say all steadfastness and patience. But we have no excuse. We have no excuse because there is more than enough power available. We have all power available to us with which we can be empowered. If you want to put a power meter on how much power we have available, the pulse of power meter you have to use is one that measures the, the glorious might of our God. That's the power meter. Because we, can be, we are to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Do you think God has enough power to enable you to endure any trial that comes into your life? You're all good enough theologians say, yes, of course the answer is yes. God has enough power to enable me to get through whatever X is. And that's what you're to allow to strengthen you. His power so that you can endure with steadfastness and patience because your being strengthened displays gospel transformation in your life. Now my guess there is that this morning there are at least a few people that are feeling worn down by the circumstances of life. Sitting here this morning, listening online, there's probably someone who feels ready to throw in the towel and to give up. Listen to what Paul says that you are to do to magnify Christ. You're here because you love Christ. You may be ready to give up, but you're here because you love Christ. Here's what Paul says you are to do. You are to be strengthened by God. You have to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit who applies the power of God Almighty so that you can endure another day. The reality is, and we were talking about this a lot in my class on Lamentations this morning, the reality is that there may be no end in sight to the power that's available to, or no end to the, the circumstance that you're facing. There might be no end in sight whatsoever to your situation. But rather than focus on that aspect of reality, focus on the reality that there is no end to the power available to you to endure. There's two aspects of reality in play here. We were talking about that this morning in my class. There's two aspects of reality. There's the, the reality of my situation, and it's real, and there may be no earthly end to that reality. But there's a spiritual reality that's equally real. And Paul says that spiritual reality is that all power equal to God Almighty is available to you to endure. 
be strengthened according to God's glorious might and continue enduring. Being strengthened for trials. That's the third action that, that magnifies Christ. The third right thing that we are to do. Fourthly, from, from verse 12, we, we get one more. Giving thanks habitually. That's my summation again. Giving thanks habitually. It's telling that Paul lists giving thanks right on the heels here of, of being strengthened for endurance. Too often when, when we go through trying circumstances... We may endure, but we certainly want to grumble and complain as we go through it. We are really good at grumbling and complaining, but we pride ourselves, but I'm enduring. Not in a manner worthy of your Savior, you're not, if you're grumbling and complaining. Paul says, give thanks. Giving thanks is not what comes to our mind when we're suffering. Yet that's what we're to do. Habitually, during easy times and hard times, we are to give thanks habitually. I am convinced that the New American Standard is correct when it connects joyously at the end of verse 11 to the giving thanks of verse 12. Some versions tie the joyfully to the previous thing, but I don't think joyfully is actually that we're to be joyfully enduring and, and having patience. Joyfully, rather, is how we are to express our, our happiness and our pleasure. It joy, that, that word joyously that Paul uses is one that describes great emotions of happiness and, and pleasure. Our thanksgiving should be exuberant thanksgiving. Not just going through the words, it should be bold over exuberance, filled with emotions as well as words. And this exuberant thanksgiving should be directed to God. Now, the reality is that the God is the ultimate source of every trial and hardship that, that we're enduring. God has allowed our trials and hardships into our lives when God could have prevented them. We, we might understand why God has done that, and we might understand why we should thank God for enabling our endurance. But exuberant thanksgiving? exuberant joy when we're going through hard times, that defies logic, doesn't it? We comprehend that God has brought this in and we can intellectually say, yes, it's for my good and his glory. But exuberantly being thankful for it? That's illogical. No, it's not. Paul said it is the most logical thing in the world because Paul reminds us that nothing that we are enduring in this life affects what we have received from God in Jesus Christ. God has given us an eternal inheritance. We are counted forever with the saints of light. There are saints in light. Now Paul goes on and explains what it means to be in the light in the next verse, but that's where I'm breaking off and we'll save that for next week. Instead of chasing that, I want us to comprehend what it means that, that we are qualified to share an inheritance. Remember, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae. He's writing to New Testament church, a, a church largely filled with Gentiles in the decades immediately following Jesus' time on earth. You know, we're, we're talking maybe 
maybe 30 years. This is within a generation's time frame. Just a generation before, their parents and grandparents, just the generation before these believers, the only people who were qualified to have inheritance were the Israelites. The only ones who were qualified to have an inheritance with the saints and light were Israelites. Sure, a few Gentiles could join by, by proselytizing to Judaism. They could travel to Jerusalem and worship there. The only place to worship God and, and celebrate your inheritance of being a saint was in Jerusalem. And a few Gentiles could go through this long process of proselytizing. But, but they were really the exception that proved the rule. Gentiles stood outside the saints of God. And it had been that way for millennia. All the way back to the days of Abraham. Gentiles were outside those qualified to share in the inheritance of God. But Christ changed all of that. Christ changed that. Now the Colossians were included with those who were qualified to share in God's eternal inheritance. Not by any work of their own, mind you. They were qualified by God. God did the work. God sent His Son. God did the work by sending His Son. God did the work by sacrificing His, God, his, his Son. God did the work by raising His Son. God did the work by giving them faith. God did the work by sending the Holy Spirit to, to draw that faith forth. God did the work by applying the gospel to... God did it all! And they're qualified now to enjoy the inheritance. God did it all. Regardless of what might be occurring in their lives at that moment, regardless of what hardship they might be going through, this momentous truth that God qualified them to be in a part of the inheritance, that gives reason for exuberant thanksgiving. Friends, do we recognize our privileged position as believers? God has qualified us not by any work that we have done. God has qualified us to share the inheritance, to share in the inheritance of the saints. One commentator described it as an inestimable, inestimable privilege. And those are perfect words, even if I can't say them. How do you measure how do you quantify, how do you put value on God qualifying us to have this inheritance? We've received it from God. We dare not overlook this truth as we focus on the circumstances of life. Our eternal inheritance, that is the foundation for the fourth action where we're called to magnify our Savior. We're to give thanks habitually because we're qualified forever. Right action number four, giving thanks habitually. What we're going through, what we're enduring with all the power of God doesn't change what we have. Give thanks habitually. Right action number four, giving thanks habitually. We are to magnify Christ with right actions, right actions that, that come from right thinking. We are to magnify Christ with right thinking that leads to right actions. 
Remember I said we're called to know what to do in every situation. We're not know-it-alls that, that think we have the skills for every task. In fact, that would be sinful pride. What we are is to be those who have quiet, attractive security of knowing what God expects us to do in every situation. What God expects us to do is magnify Christ with right thinking that leads to right actions. We are to bear spiritual fruit. We are to increase in biblical knowledge. We are to be strengthened for trials. We are to give thanks habitually. That's what we are to do in every situation. We are to magnify Christ with right thinking that leads to right actions. Let's pray. Father, may we indeed be joyfully thankful people for what we have received from you. May we be people who are obviously, demonstrably, demonstratively being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ because our faith is entirely wrapped up in our Savior. And our purpose is given over to magnifying Him. Father, shake us this morning with Your Spirit. Shake off the distractions of this life, the lethargy that has taken hold of too many of us. And help us to magnify Your Son. Give us the right thinking and the energy for the right actions so that Christ will be magnified. It's in his name we pray. Amen.